Please turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1, James 1, and these guys have some Bibles, so if you need a Bible to look at James 1 with us, then get your hand up, those guys will get one to you. And we are in a series in the book of James. The title of the series is on the screen, Real Faith. And the reason that we are calling it Real Faith is because the theme of the book of James is given in chapter 1 and verse 3, where we are told that the testing of our faith produces perseverance, the testing of our faith. And faith in the New Testament is the same word for belief. So God tests, examines through circumstances and other ways, what it is we truly believe. So we claim, we profess certain things, but the question is, do we genuinely, authentically, really believe those? And thus the title of the series, Real Faith. And we have been, now this for the fifth week, been looking at the application of the verses 22 through 25 in chapter 1 in which James tells us of the need for those who genuinely believe that the Bible, Scripture, is God's Word to be changed when they're confronted with it. And so important is this issue of change in our lives, day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month, year-to-year, that we have spent these now, this being the fifth week on this subject. Now, for those of you that are new, normally, as we're going through a book, we will take a passage... And we will identify what that passage says, and then we will move the following week on to the next passage in the book under consideration. But we have stopped here in order to look at application of what verses 22 through 25 mean. And so on the first week, we explained the illustration that's used there. I'll briefly do that again now, but then we want to conclude our application of that in this kind of sub-theme. And then we will move on two weeks from today to verses 26 and 27, and then on to chapter 2. Next week, we'll be treated to the ministry of Pastor Matt, so I encourage you all to be here for that, and then we'll continue through the book of James two weeks from today. But in verses 22 through 25, James tells us in verse 22 to be doers of the word and not merely hearers of the word. And then he goes on to show the absurdity of being one who hears, or in our case, now that we have a completed Bible, reads the Word, and then goes away unchanged from that encounter. That absurdity is seen in his illustration of one who encounters himself in a mirror, sees the changes that need to be made. He's unkempt, but he goes on without making those changes. And that's in contrast, in verse 25, to someone who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom. And so the Word of God is likened unto this mirror. The one man has a casual glance, is not changed, and does not approach it for the purpose of change. But in verse 22, there's another man who looks intently into the mirror of the Word of God, the perfect law that gives freedom. And unlike a forgetful hearer, he does what it says and is changed by it. The end of verse 25 tells us that as a result, he is blessed in what he does. This issue of change is of extreme importance, and so we're going to take this fifth and final week to look at practical implications of that need in our lives. There are different forms of braggadocio, of boasting. One form of boasting is often seen in annoying fashion in athletics, in sports. Days before the start of the Olympic Games in London, Matt Lauer asked swimmer Ryan Lochte to write the headline to his own London story. And here's what Lochte said, Ryan Lochte takes over in all humility. He also added in that interview, to me, Michael Phelps is just another swimmer. Now, you know, if you're going to make a claim like that, then you probably do not want to be the guy who loses the gold medal for your team and for your country by giving up a lead on the anchor leg of the 4 by 100 relay. But Lochte did just that. And yet, all in all, most of us know he had a very good, even great Olympics. 
five medals, two of them gold. But his bravado made what should have been a victory overall look merely normal. Now contrast that with diver David Bodiah, who was asked how he will feel if he doesn't medal. His answer was, God is sovereign. And whatever happens, will be fine. Now, in another understandable area, there's a form of bragging, of braggadocio, of boasting that exaggerates our own fortitude and our own abilities. I remember years ago when actor Michael Landon was diagnosed with cancer, and he insisted that he's going to beat it. I remember years before that, the coach of North Carolina State, Jim Valvano, basketball coach. Some of you remember that they won the national championship in 1983 against all odds. He became a favorite. He was very enthusiastic, but he was uh, diagnosed with cancer as well. He gave a very moving and memorable speech that you can look up on, on YouTube about his illness and about how he was going to face it and how he was going to beat it. But of course, both Michael Landon and Jim Valvano have passed away. Or there's the businessman who suffers an unexpected loss in business, but he says, you know, I am better than this. I can beat this. So there is this boasting. There is this pride that takes a number of forms. And some of them are just annoying, as in sports. Some of them are understandable when it regards our health. But pride and boasting is fatal when it comes to our spiritual lives. And two weeks ago, we saw four truths that we must continually turn to if we are going to be changed by the Word of God. Last week, we looked at desires we must continually turn from. And today, we're going to look at a number of things that keep us, hindrances to our changing. And one of those I have for you in the outline that's inserted in your program. And it is this that we still struggle with various forms of pride. One of the things, one of the chief things that keeps us from changing is that each of us still struggles with various forms of pride. And we want to look at those various forms of pride, but let's ask God to help us as we do. Father, we come before you asking you to help us acknowledging our need of your aid. Lord, this will simply be an exercise in futility without your Spirit moving upon our hearts. We ask for your grace in the form of your Spirit, convicting us in the form of your Spirit, illuminating our minds so that we can see the significance of what you tell us in Scripture. And then and only then can we go forth changed and changing. And so we ask you and we thank you in advance for what you're going to do. In the name of Jesus, amen. We still, all of us, struggle with various forms of pride. And throughout Scripture, God tells us how fatal pride is to spiritual life. He says in more than one place, as a matter of fact, here is 1 Peter 5, but he also says in the book we're considering, in James chapter 4, James chapter 4 and verse 6, that God opposes the proud, but it's to the humble that he gives grace. Jesus began his famous Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 and 6 and 7. And right at the beginning in Matthew chapter 5, he gives what are called the Beatitudes, the, the blessings. Blessed are those who. And here's what he says at the very beginning. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The Bible is making clear that without abject humility before God, the kingdom of heaven will not be our possession. It is impossible to have a relationship with God apart from the requisite humility to come to Him and to receive what He alone can give. And therefore, blessed are the spiritually bankrupt. 
Blessed are those who understand that they come with nothing in their hands except our sin and the empty hands then of faith. Pride is fatal to spiritual progress, to spiritual change, to spiritual maturity. And we all struggle with various forms of this pride, and I have some of those listed for you in your outline. One of those is self-reliance. One form of pride is to rely upon myself in order to see change in myself. According to biblical counseling author Ed Welch, when someone says something like, I can't believe I've done it again, or I'm so mad at myself for doing this, Welch says when a person is mad at himself for for repeating the same sin over and over again, now hear this, it's actually a veiled form of pride that assumes he's capable of doing good in his own power. He's minimizing his spiritual inability apart from God's grace. And so many of us, the reason that we have not changed and are not engaged in regular change in our lives is because we have this self-reliance that says, it depends upon me. And we see that we believe that in the reaction that we have when we fail. And this is one reason that we fail to get to root issues in our struggles. We hate the fact, now hear this, we hate the fact that we're losing at something. And we hate that more than the fact that God is grieved by our sin. And so we look at what's happening and we don't like it for various reasons. The effects it has on others, the effects it has on us, we're embarrassed by it. We know that God says, I shouldn't do it. So we don't want it, and we're losing, and we hate that. But the question is, do we hate the fact that God is grieved by that more than anything else? And if we simply take the, this is a battle in which I must get victory approach, then we'll fail to see that the chief issue is whether or not our reaction to sin is centered on God's, the effect it has on God, more than the effect it has on us and on others. That's why author Jerry Bridges says this, Our attitude towards sin is often more self-centered than God-centered. We're more concerned about our own victory over sin than we are about the fact that our sins grieve the heart of God. So I ask you, dear friend, when was the last time you said to yourself, Oh, how I have grieved the heart of my loving Father. Oh, how I have so disappointed and displeased Him by what I'm doing or failing to do. Instead, what most of us do is say, Yes, this is something I need to discard. This is something I need to change. But at the center of that desire to change is not the effect it has on God, but the effect it has on us and perhaps on others. And then we engage in our own way of trying to change it. We have prideful self-reliance. And one way that we know we are doing this, engaging in this prideful self-reliance, is when we seek to do it, see change in our lives, seek to see that change, without using the means that God has provided for that change. We seek to battle sin apart from the means of grace. And so I'll turn over a new leaf. I'll make a New Year's resolution. I say I'm going to stop doing that. I make promises to people. And God says, I provided you means of grace for this change to occur that are absolutely vital and necessary if you're truly going to change. Those means of grace include Scripture, the Word of God. Any of us here who says, I'm going to change, apart from a regular diet of the Word of God, is engaging in prideful self-reliance. The means of grace include the Bible, the Word of God, but also prayer. Acknowledging to God, God, you are supreme, you are most important. 
This sin that I'm engaged in, this struggle that I have, grieves your heart. And I recognize that I cannot do this apart from you and your aid and your grace. The means of grace include the Word of God, the Bible, prayer, but also the communion of saints. Being with other believers who have perhaps trod this path before you, have learned some things about the struggle before you that they can impart to you. But even if they haven't gone the same route you have gone, they can still, the Bible tells us, encourage one another and pray for one another. And we confess to one another, the Bible says. But of course, we'll never do that as long as we hang on to our pride. And so you know that you're engaging in this prideful self-reliance if you seek change apart from the means of grace that God has provided. I've made many mistakes in ministry over the years. One of them has been to engage in counseling people who come for change without getting a commitment from those people that they are engaged in utilizing the means of grace. The truth is what I should do and have begun doing is saying, as we're going to work together to see you change, there are certain things you are going to need to do. You're going to have to avail yourself in humility of what God has provided because apart from the Word of God and apart from prayer and apart from the communion of the saints, you will not be able to change. And by me not doing that, I've evidenced the same sort of prideful self-reliance. We can get this fixed. But the truth is we can't get this fixed apart from God's Word, apart from prayer, and apart from His church. One of the reasons that we do not change is the form of pride that is self-reliance. But also, secondly, in your outline, self-justification. The book, You Can Change, that I have cited at the bottom of your outline, says that self-reliance is this. It says, I'll do okay by myself. So we've just looked at self-reliance. And so I don't have to have God. I'm mad at myself because it's dependent on me. And I'm the one who needs to do this. And I can change apart from the means of grace that God has provided. Self-reliance says, I'll do okay by myself. Self-justification says, I'm doing okay by myself. Thank you very much. And so I justify myself. You justify yourself. We don't like to think of ourselves as bad people. We don't want to think that our hearts are evil and so we don't take responsibility for our sin. We admit that we need to change but we don't want to admit that we are the problem. And so we develop a number of avoidance strategies. And some of those avoidance strategies are listed in your outline as well. One of them is to excuse sin. According to Tim Chester, the author of that book, there are four common ways that we excuse our sin. I'm going to put them on the screen for you. Four common ways that we excuse. The first one is by blaming context. So the reason I sin is because of the particular context, the particular situation I was in when I did that or responded that way. And so we say things like, he just made me so mad, it was so unfair. You would have done the same thing if you had been in my situation. So we excuse sin by blaming the context. But another way that we excuse sin is by blaming our background, our upbringing. So we say things like, you know, I am my father's son or my mother's daughter. I take after my dad. He used to get angry. I learned my anger from him, my upbringing. So we're excusing sin by blaming the context, blaming our upbringing, or by 
blaming our personal history. Given all that I've been through, if you knew the path that I've had to travel, if you had to go down the road that I've gone through, if you knew what has gone on in my life, my personal history is the reason that I sin. And then a fourth way is biology. I'm hardwired for this. Hardwired for sin. Biopsychiatry is the latest challenge to biblical truth. Hardwired for sin. It's just the way I am. I'm hot-headed. And the implication is there's nothing that I or nothing that can be done about it. And so, friends, we excuse sin in all of these ways and more. And the truth, there is truth in all of these. Of course, there is a context in which all of us sin. Of course, all of us are affected by what we have seen modeled in front of us in the homes that we had, assuming we had a home. By the things that we've gone through in our personal history. And we are all wired differently, uniquely uniquely made, and therefore have unique ways in which our sin manifests itself. There's truth in all of these. But hear this. Though they are all influential, none of them is determinative. They all influence us. None of them determines what we choose to do. We would much prefer to be known in our pride as defeated rather than disobedient. Something or someone outside of me, and that's the key, outside of me, has got me, defeated me. Rather than recognizing that I am disobedient and the root is not outside of me, But the Bible says, as we have seen many times, inside of me. Matthew 12, 34, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Luke chapter 6, verse verse 45. Jesus says that a good tree brings forth good fruit. A bad tree brings forth bad fruit from the root that it is. But we would rather be known as defeated rather than disobedient. And yet God tells us, There is no temptation. And you all may remember that the word for temptation used in James chapter 1. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. Same word for in verse 2 of James chapter 1. My brothers, consider it pure joy when you face, whenever you face trials. That word trials, same word for tempted. And so here, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, no temptation or no trial. That is, nothing outside of you, no circumstance, no situation has confronted you. That Satan, according to James 1, as we have seen, intends to lure you into temptation to sin, but God intends for that situation to make you better. None of those situations has seized you except that which is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted better. He will not allow you to be tried. Because God's intention is not to tempt you. James 1 says he tempts no one with evil. Satan's intention is to use the same circumstance as a temptation to sin. God tries us. He's trying us to make us better. But none of that trial is beyond what you can bear. But when you are tried, God will provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Dr. Combs preached for us several months ago. He actually preached from this passage. You may recall that when he got to that last phrase, that God will provide a way of escape or a way out, he talked about the means of grace, the Word of God and prayer and God's people. God provides that 
But we have to have the humility to take what it is that God provides. And so in our pride, we have a number of things that we do, including excusing our sin. But fourthly in your outline, we minimize our sin. We say things like, what I do is not that bad. Minimize. What I do or the things I do are only small things. Now, we get away with this because we compare ourselves to other people. (laughs) And we love the fact that there are other people for us to compare to. And there's always somebody on television, somebody in the newspaper, somebody at work, somebody that you compare yourself to and you can say, I'm not like him or her. Or we love to seize on what he or she did. Do you know what they did? And when we talk about what they did, it makes us feel so much better about ourselves. So we minimize by saying it's not that bad, it's small, comparing ourselves to other people. Or by highlighting our goodness, so that that goodness overshadows our sin. Overall, I'm not too bad a guy or gal. And I could lay out for you my spiritual resume. And show you all the good things I do. Don't you all remember that? Okay, you're confronting me with that sin. I know I do that. I know I struggle with that. I'm sorry. But what about all these good things I do? Or we minimize it by the language we use. Instead of confessing our sin. Remember, confess means literally to say the same thing. So instead of saying the same thing about it that God says... We use language that masks the seriousness of it. It was a lapse in judgment. I slipped. You know, we say things and we say, oh, that, I let that slip. (laughs) Well, guess what? It can only slip if it's there to begin with. Jesus says it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. So it's a lapse in judgment. I slipped or or I I fall, that's one of the reasons that it can be problematic that we call the first sin the fall. Because people can get the idea that it's an accident, but of course it was a deliberate sin, and our sin is deliberate. But we use language to mask that. We're not liars, we just engage in white lies. We're not sinners, we engage in little sins. And minor indiscretions. Friends, how serious is sin to you? And the question of how serious sin is to you must first be related to how serious sin is to God. If your evaluation of sin goes no further than its effect on you and its effect on others, then you'll fail to see the eternal gravity of sin. Only when we relate our sin to our holy God do we begin to grasp its significance. And then never can we say it's just a lapse or a slip or it's a white lie or a little sin. How do I know how serious it is? How do you know how serious it is? You need look no further, and in fact you should look no further, than the cross upon which God the Son died. If sin is little, if sin is just white lies, if sin is a minor indiscretion, if it is that you can compare and contrast yourself and I can compare myself to other people, then explain God hanging on a cruel cross. God sees all of our sin as eternal violation of God's holy will. Liable for eternal punishment. When was the last time 
you trembled at what God says about sin. But God says this, this is the one I esteem. He was humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. It all assumes you're in God's word. It all assumes that you crack open that book that most of you have in your lap beyond the 40, 45 minutes that we're together when you can tune it out. But rather, you look into it and you see God's holy character there and you say, oh my. You say like Isaiah did in Isaiah chapter 6, I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. So we minimize our sin. And it's one of the forms of pride that keeps us from changing. And then fifthly, we seek to hide our sin. And why do we seek to hide our sin? Well, it's because we care more about our reputation than we hate sin. Okay, I can acknowledge that I'm a sinner to me. I can acknowledge that I'm a sinner to God even. But I don't want to acknowledge that I sin in specific and harmful ways to other people. Because my reputation with other people is more important to me than is my hatred of sin. I'm willing to stop sinning (laughs) as long as nobody else knows I was. But the truth is, many of our sins take place in a relational context, don't they? And to have the humility, because we hate sin more than we love our reputations, to stop hiding it, and rather confess it, and confess it to those who have been adversely affected by it, means I must see it as God sees it. The Bible warns against hiding our sin. He who conceals his sin does not prosper. But whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. And of course we have a long and inglorious history going all the way back to our first parents in Adam and Eve in this issue of hiding our sin. Adam and Eve, you'll recall, in Genesis chapter 3 immediately hid themselves from from God. They hid themselves from God, hiding from Him with whom they had had an open and and, and relationship of communion. But now because of sin, they hide from God and they hide from each other, and we continue that process. Now what's the answer? What What do we do? Rather than hiding, we repent. Repent, we, you remember last week, means a change of, change of mind. It's a change of mind about what we believe about ourselves. Most important, what we believe about God, that God is bigger and that God is better, we saw last week. But it is also a change of mind about our sin. And when we repent, we are saying that there is nothing more important to me than being in right relationship with my God. My reputation is not more important than that. There is nothing that's more important than dealing with sin. And so author Jerry Bridges gives us a way to to deal with this. Now, Before I give you his quote, I want to show you one more verse of Scripture where God talks about our propensity to Hide our sin. Everyone who does evil hates the light, will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. And so it is a vestige of our sin nature. Even if we have come to Christ, even if we have been rescued and saved, born again, that we hide our sin as our first parents did how am i going to come from out of the hiding and into the light 
Grace breaks this cycle. Grace disarms the fear of exposure. It brings us into light and into the arena where change can take place. And so author Jerry Bridges says this. The gospel applied to our hearts every day frees us to be brutally honest with ourselves and with God. The assurance of His total forgiveness of our sins through the blood of Christ means we don't have to play defensive games anymore. We don't have to rationalize and excuse our sins. We can say we told a lie instead of saying we exaggerated a bit. We can admit an unforgiving spirit instead of continuing to blame our parents for our emotional distress. We can call sin exactly what it is, regardless of how ugly and shameful it may be. Because we know that Jesus bore that sin in His body on the cross with the assurance of total forgiveness through Christ. We have no reason to hide from our sins anymore. Now, that is absolutely true. But the converse is true as well. As long as we continue to hide from our sins, it is a sure sign that we do not appreciate the sacrifice that Jesus has made for those sins. So, dear friend, we engage in all kinds of ways that keep us from from changing because we still demonstrate various forms of pride in our lives. Here's a second way that keeps us from the change that we should desire. And I have it for you in your outline, and it's this. We hate the consequences of sin, but not sin itself. We hate the consequences, but not the sin itself. Very often our sin has relational consequences. So in our marriages, in our parenting, in our work relationships, our sin shows up. It has ill consequences. We hate those. We want to get those fixed. But it's not the sin itself that we hate, but the results of the sin. And as a result, if I could find a different situation where those consequences aren't in front of my face anymore, if I could leave that spouse, if I could change that job, if I could somehow deal with that child, kick him or her out of the house, something, then I don't have to deal with these consequences. But still, there is the sin itself. There is still the heart that gave rise to that sin. And we must come to the point that we hate the sin more than we hate the results of the sin. This is why we don't often get to root issues in our lives. We simply want it taken care of on the surface. So think about the struggle or struggles that you have personally. You say, I want them fixed. I want them taken care of. Then ask yourself this. Why? Why do you want them taken care of? Well, because they're causing me all kinds of pain. That's not an adequate reason. Well, because they're causing all kinds of other people pain. That's not an adequate reason. The only adequate reason for us to desire to be rid of sin in our lives is because it grieves the heart of the God who made us and the Savior who gave Himself for us. And any less motivation will not be lasting. And that is one of the main reasons we don't change. We hate the consequences of sin rather than the sin itself. So, why don't we face our sin? We're prideful. We don't change fully because we're more concerned about results, consequences, ill effects, rather than the sin itself. And all of this means we just don't face up to the realities of the root of our struggle. Now, I'd like to share with you some summary ways, then, 
in which this shows up in our lives. One of the reasons that we will not, we just will not face because of our pride, we will not face our sin is because of shame. You know, I've talked about the relational context. I've talked about the fact that I can admit it to myself. I can admit it to God. I don't want to admit it to other people because my reputation is more important. To put that another way, we don't want to face the shame. But hear this. The person that should be the hardest to face is the person that I have wronged the most. The person that it should be the hardest to face is the person who I have wronged the most. Now, in any sin, who is that? It's not your spouse. It's not your kids. It's not your employer. It's not your parents. In any relationship, the person who has been most wronged by our sin is God himself. Now think about the distortion of being able to say, but I can go to God and admit it, no big whoop. It's other people that I worry about. We are saying that the shame that I face before them is more important than the shame before God. The person that should be hardest to face is the one who's been wronged the most, and that is always God. This is why as an illustration in just human relationships. This is why a family that has been offended by a criminal, violated by a criminal, often gets to speak at sentencing. So if the criminal has murdered a husband, the community and extended family get to speak, and they've been affected. But facing the widow is without doubt the most difficult because she's the one who has been most violated in the human realm. Or if that husband who was murdered was also a father and you as the criminal have to face face his now fatherless children. We don't want to face the shame. But unfortunately, we think it is more shameful to face people than it is the one who is most offended every time we sin, namely God. Secondly, we don't want to face it because of the shame, and we misplace the shame rather than the shame before God. It's shame before people. But secondly, we don't want to face it because of the fear of punishment. We want to run from it because we know it deserves severe, and if we understand the Bible at all, lifelong penalty, perhaps even, perhaps even death. But suppose that you are, suppose the one that you've wronged, now hear this, friends, the one that you've wronged is of infinite value, and your crime is therefore worthy of infinite punishment. The desire to escape that punishment would lead you to do anything, anything, rather than face an infinite judgment on what I've done. And when I say do anything, you just look at the history of humanity and you see people doing anything rather than face the one that we have ultimately offended. Engage in self-mutilation. I'll lock myself up in a monastery. I'll submit to being crucified to show that I'll take my own punishment for this. Anything, but I want to make up my own because I can't stand before you, the infinite one that I have offended. Because I know it deserves, as bad as self-mutilation is, or lifetime in a monastery, or submitting yourself to crucifixion is, In all of those self-inflicted punishments, they are temporary. But standing before God and the punishment that I deserve won't be temporary. It's an infinite offense against an infinitely holy God. But what if the murder that you committed was also painful? 
payment for your crime. The one you killed was actually there to die to pay the punishment for, in the words of one songwriter, every bitter thought and every evil deed that crowned your blood-stained brow. That murder that you committed and I committed, and that lying and that treachery and that mocking and, yes, that pride that brought all of it about is the apex, it's the summation, it's the totality of every sin of thought and word and deed ever committed. And Jesus, God the Son, absorbed it so that you don't have to. And as a result, the judgment is rendered in full. And you are free. Yes, there are others who have been harmed by particular sins that you and I have committed, both large and small sins from our perspective. And we will have to face them. But hear this, you can do so because you know the ultimate crime is against someone else. And the ultimate consequence is of infinitely more consequence than it is on the human level. And that's why David said in Psalm 51, after he had sinned against his wife, after he had sinned against Bathsheba, after he had sinned against the nation by committing adultery, he says in Psalm 51 and verse 4, God against you and against you only have I sinned. This God against whom every time you sin, it's an infinite offense. Every time you sin and I sin, it deserves an eternal punishment. But this God has come to absorb the punishment for you in the murder that we committed by placing Him on the cross. And further... He's invited you into his family. Yikes, he's invited us into his family. He's invited you, a murderer and a thief and a liar, like me, a murderer, a thief, and a liar. And he has invited you into his family and into his home and into his confidence. And so as a result of that, your response and my response should be, we love this God. And out of love, because He first loved us, and because what He believes and His reputation and offense against Him is always most important, then I am willing to come clean about what I have done. I'll quote author Jerry Bridges one more time. He said, as I mentioned earlier, the gospel applied to our hearts every day frees us to be honest with ourselves and with God. It's the assurance of His total forgiveness of our sins through the blood of Christ that means we don't have to play defensive games anymore. We don't have to rationalize and we don't have to excuse our sins. With the assurance of total forgiveness through Christ, we have no reason to hide from our sins anymore. And that's why the Bible says this. Christ Jesus has become for us our righteousness and our holiness and our redemption. And therefore it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Your pride keeps you from dealing with your sin. My pride keeps me from dealing with my sin. Jesus breaks down our pride so that we can face the shame, 
so that we can face the punishment and we can see that the one who has been most offended by every sin that we commit is none other than God himself. I say in your take-home truth, friends, we will only change when we have the self-humility and the sin-hatred that comes from the cross. Let's bow together and ask God to give us that humility and that appropriate hatred for sin on the basis of which we can change for good. Our Father, we thank you for this look into the pages of your word to see again there how you view sin. And to be reminded there that central to the message of the entire Word of God is the cross of Jesus and that God the Son had to come to make full payment for sin, otherwise sin would be punished in us forever. And so, Lord, I pray that the practical implications of that then would be very real to me and very real to us in our everyday lives. Help us to see, Lord, that the most important person who is offended in every sin we commit is not us, it's not others, it is you. Help us to value you more than our reputation. Help us, Lord, to hate sin more than we value our own pride and the way we are seen by others. And help us to do that as we look full into the cross of Jesus, seeing there how serious sin is so we will not minimize it seeing there a God who loves us with an infinite love, giving himself for us. And help us to see there that our sin has been paid in full. It has been judged by God the Father and God the Son. And therefore, the most significant payment has been made. What I have to deal with, Lord, in the consequences of my sin in the horizontal realm with others is minuscule infinitely minuscule compared to what needed to be paid because of my offense before you. Thank you, Jesus, for loving us. And because you have loved us, we love in return. Help us to show that love of you more than our love of ourselves and our reputation this week so that we can bring honor and glory to you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.